you may have noticed, adorning the front of the platform here are poinsettias galore. Each one of those represents a staff member, an elder, a deaconess, or a deacon. And if you're one of those, I hope that you would come get yours after the service, because they will die. <laughs> but they were watered again this morning, so they are living now. But I wanted you as a congregation to know that they work tirelessly in, in a number of ways that you have no idea. So if you see a staff person, an elder, a deaconess, or a deacon, I hope that you might say thank you as they come forward to get their poinsettias. So I just wanted to give thanks for them. So could you give thanks for them too? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. George MacDonald, 19th century Scottish pastor. He had a farm, probably, I don't know. <clears throat> but he did have a big family, which is right here. That's him. Back it up a little bit, though. I have a picture of him with just his family. Um, George MacDonald was a 19th century Scottish pastor who was um, a prolific author, spoke candidly, about all sorts of things. Um, just as a little piece of uh, trivia for you, George MacDonald's son, his name is Ronald, that's right, Ronald MacDonald, <laughs> moved to Asheville, got a five-year contract at the Ravenscroft School, married, had a child, his wife dies, his sister Lily comes from Scotland to Asheville to console Ronald in his grief. George MacDonald lived a full life, wrote a ton, and he is, by C.S. Lewis's own admission, the greatest influence that C.S. Lewis ever had spiritually. C.S. Lewis was very honest about saying there was no page that he ever wrote that didn't have some sort of George MacDonald's influence somewhere embedded in it, whether implicitly or explicitly. But his appreciation for George MacDonald was not a fawning kind of allegiance. In fact, he was very frank about saying this. I do not say, now you can show that. I dare not say that he is never in error, but to speak plainly, I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continuously close to the spirit of Christ himself. Hence, his Christ-like union of tenderness and severity. Nowhere else outside the New Testament have I found terror and comfort so intertwined. Mr. Rogers will often remind you of Jesus. But Jesus will sometimes not remind you of Mr. Rogers. And that is as it should be. Because we must take him on his terms. And I begin with this quote about C.S. Lewis to George MacDonald today because we're going to listen to some words of Jesus that, boy, if it isn't the union of severity and tenderness, I don't know what is. And what Jesus has to speak to us today is that he will return. And what does it mean that he will return? And what does it mean for us? What does it look like for him to come back unto us? Advent, as we've said from the beginning of Advent, is recalling about when Jesus arrived for the first time, but only so that it might refresh our sense of the fact that he will return. Which is an interesting idea. But the problem is this, the, the physicists will tell us that the moon 
in about 600 million years is going to drift beyond Earth's orbit, so save the day. Which, I have a picture of Artemis here. That's from Artemis from two weeks ago. That's the moon and the Earth, and that's an amazing picture. I would not have wanted to have been on Artemis on re-entry. It, it was a little charred. But that's an amazing picture. But someday the moon will have escaped Earth's velocity, and it's just going to go out there. And that's an idea that none of us have a reason to quibble with, but you don't really need to arrange your schedule around that truth. Imagine what the Outer Banks will be without the moon. Ugh. Why do I bring that up? The idea of Jesus returning can easily slip into this idea that the moon will one day drift away. I don't have any reason to argue with it, I don't have any reason to quibble with it, but, you know, I don't really arrange my calendar around it. Well, friends, you're about to hear some rather tender and severe words of Jesus that says, no, my return has an intended effect. And you and I have to grapple with that. It's not just the idea that the moon will drift away someday. It has to be more than just sort of a plaque on the wall, and it has to instead become some sort of controlling principle. Well, what does that look like? Well, good, I'm glad you're here, because Jesus is going to speak to that question. What does it mean to wait for his return? We're going to consider that under three headings. One, that he is. Two, when he will. And then three, so what? What practical difference does it make? What are the marks of waiting? That he will when he will, and what will it look like for us now that he might. Let's listen to the tenderness and severity of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Would you stand? We'll do this together. Luke chapter 12, we'll start in verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat, drink, and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the tender and severe word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, beatings. Uh, those of you that are here by way of concession and not by way of intention, <laughs> boy, did I pick a good day. Merry Christmas. 
Let's talk about it. Sometimes parents, kids, your parents ever give you a stern look, a severe look? No, it never happens. If you think there isn't love behind it, you're wrong. There's a collection of essays uh, that came out in 1960, a few years before C.S. Lewis died, and the last essay of that collection of essays took a line from a sonnet by John Donne entitled, um, The World's Last Night. And, and the first line of the sonnet, which is in the sermon resource page this week if you want to read it in full, is, what if this present were the world's last night? What if tonight was it? Like, I know you have all these plans for Saturday and Sunday, but what if, sorry, got to rethink the plan? What if tonight was the world's last night? What would it do in you? In that essay that C.S. Lewis wrote, that, I, again, is also in the resource page, I commend it to you wholeheartedly. I had never read it before until about two weeks ago. Uh, he spends several pages talking about the doctrine and the practice of the belief that Jesus will return. And he would summarize what Jesus, that teaching, under three heads, which should sound really familiar because that's where I got my outline. Ready? What does he say? His teaching on the subject quite clearly consisted of three propositions. That he will certainly return, that we cannot possibly find out when, and that therefore we must always be ready for him. Those are our three heads. That's our three burdens. What is it? Well, let's talk about the first one first. And these first two points will go quickly. That he will return, if you didn't catch that in the passage, wake up. Like, uh, let's see, um, eight times you hear references to the master returning. It's not subtle, it's not metaphorical, and it's certainly not limited to this passage. In any number of other places, like you heard Andrew preach last week from Matthew 25, it's a given, and it's not a metaphor. Now, here we are in church, and we can hear that word, and you and I can nod and go, yes, yes, we can even sing about it or read scripture about it. But you go out into polite company, and you're talking about Jesus' return. <laughs> what? Oh, wow. And the people around you are going, look at the time. And we understand why they do. And that sentiment today is not so different from the kind of sentiment that C.S. Lewis was writing into when he wrote that essay. Because was was then, so it is now. People like Jesus to a point. They dig the ethical part, but on this apocalyptic return stuff, hard pass. Right? It's kind of the Thomas Jefferson thing. I'll take everything that he says that sounds like wisdom, but all the supernatural, hmm, we're going to move on from there. That's what we do. But in that move, as C.S. Lewis says, I'm borrowing a lot from what he says, there's a certain assumption in that move where you'll take the ethical part and, and get rid of all the apocalyptic part. One, it is to say, I'm going to take Jesus on my own terms. You know what? Because I have the authority to do that. Really? Who appointed you? But secondly, I think what Lewis is trying to argue in his essay is this, if you think that the stuff about him returning was just kind of a teaching of his day that he kind of latched onto and, and sort of rode that horse home, well, then why isn't the other stuff kind of culturally time-bound? Why is this stuff, yeah, obsolete, outdated, totally culturally embedded, but the other stuff about you have dignity, 
sacrifice is good, uh, forgiveness and reconciliation ought to be human priorities. Why is that stuff not also time-bound? You do that move, what you're doing is this, and you don't know that you're doing it in real time, is that you, because you're modern, automatically know what is old and obsolete and what is transcendent and is relevant for all times. It's what you have to do. If you're going to take Jesus' words about returning and then put it in a different category from all of his words about love and you know, kindness and you know, taking care of your bodies and taking care of all things, well then, you're kind of playing fast and loose with your own world. Let me, let me show you how biases in modern world can, we can be blind to even in the moment. Now, this author I'm about to quote has, has nothing about the return of Jesus, okay? Her name, and I'm going to need Scott Rail's help to pronounce her name because she's from Nigeria. Her name is Chimamanda. Chimamanda, and I'm not even going to try to guess her last name, but she's an author, She's a novelist, and she's, a, she's also lamenting what she senses to be a trend among us that when it comes to writing on controversial subjects, what ought to happen, so the prevailing sentiment is, is to censor or censure that talk. Get rid of it. Anybody heard about that recently? Yeah. Her lament is, just because it's controversial doesn't mean you silence it. And so she writes in an essay of late, she writes this, This new social censure demands consensus while being willfully blind to its own tyranny. I think it portends the death of curiosity, the death of learning, and the death of creativity. Here's why I quoted her, coming up. Literature deeply matters. I believe literature is in peril because of social censure. If nothing changes, the next generation will read us and wonder, how did they manage to stop being human? How were they so lacking in contradiction and complexity? How did they banish all their shadows? Oh, that's a line from a novelist. It has nothing to do with the return of Jesus. But what she's arguing is, do you realize how blind to our own biases we can be in the moment? That just because it's a contemporary thought doesn't mean it's true. Just because you're a member of a late modern sensibility doesn't mean you automatically know what fits and what doesn't. Um, my wife on Marketplace bought one of those little sprouting things with the fluorescent lights. Ugh, takes up space. But, you know, she's growing herbs, right? She's sprouting, dressed herbs. She's sprouting herbs. And I'm trying to sprout in all of us the possibility that he might be back tonight. Because if it is possible that there's a Lord, and if it is possible that that God became flesh in Jesus, And if it is possible that that God-man both died and was risen from the dead, then why can't you also consider the possibility that he might return? Just because you're a modern doesn't mean you're automatically off the hook about believing, yeah, it's very possible. That he's coming is the first point we have to grapple with. Now let's talk about the second one, which will be very short. So when will that be? How shall I put this to you? It'll go very quickly. I have no idea. And you know who else doesn't know? Jesus. That's why it's kind of funny there in verse 39 and verse 40. He he portrays himself as a thief that's out to break in. Isn't it it funny and just like Jesus to sort of portray himself as the dude trying to, to break in? And if you're a thief worth his weight in salt, then you will come at a time where you do not like rap on the window saying, I'm here. 
No one will know you're there, and no one will know that you showed up. Jesus is saying it's unexpected. And even he himself didn't know, as he says in other places in Scripture. And as soon as you and I hear that, we think, wait a minute. If Jesus is God and God knows everything, and so why doesn't he know this? I don't know. But I'm going to borrow a phrase from other theologians who have thought about this a lot longer than any of us have, and it's this. When Jesus becomes flesh, like you and me, he enters into our limitations. He can be hungry. He can be weary. He can be harmed. He can be tortured. And he can die just like you and me. He enters into our limitations. And if that is true of all of those things about him, that those limitations that we share with him, well, guess what? You and I don't know it all either. And for whatever reason, Jesus in that moment says, you know what? Even the Father has not disclosed that to me. So what's the implication? There was a series a few years ago called The Leftovers, which, caveat emptor on that one, okay? But there's a moment in that that I've referenced before in which they portray, in the very first episode of the third season, the Millerites. 1840s. He predicted the day that Jesus would come, and, and it tells the story without words of this family that sells their goats and the stitches for themselves white linen and builds a platform in a tree And on the night that they were told he would come back, they're ready. And that's one way of being ready. The implications of us not knowing when he's coming, let me lay it down to you like this. It's not about checking your watch anymore. It's not about looking on the horizon anymore. And it's not about tracking geopolitical machinations. It's about something else. So here's now we get into the meat of the sermon. What in the world does it look like? What are the marks of those who have come to wait and believe he will return? And before we get into the text, let's imagine a sort of metaphor for this moment. A scene that you can easily see two employees waiting for the boss to return. Gosh, you're still on break? Well, please hurry up. We have a lot to get done before the break, and we have an extra long weekend. Two whole extra days off for Christmas? Wow. <laughs> At least they're paid. Bonus from the boss would be nice. For sitting in the break room? Did you know we actually have to do something to get rewarded? Speaking of which, he could be coming back any minute, so come on, please. We have a lot to get done. Oh, gosh. Hey, you afraid you're have on the naughty list? <laughs> I'm afraid of losing our bonus. You better watch out. You better not cry. Or lose my job. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. This is not funny. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Do you even care? So be good, for goodness sake. Exactly. You know, that sounds kind of messed up. Some dude just dangling toys for good deeds. So you think we should just do whatever or nothing at all and still get what we want? I mean, if he's a jolly old saint, he'll be in good 
you know, that is a great lesson to grow up with. Everyone, just do whatever you want, and you'll still get a reward. It certainly worked for you. No, we're supposed to be working. And we will. Just chill for a second. This is your third break today. We have a lot to get done. Finn, go do it. I, I need your help. And I need motivation. How about keeping your job? He's not going to fire us. You don't know that? It's almost Christmas time. He'll oh. understand. Okay, so what about all those orders or the people that are counting on us? I'm not going to let guilt or fear get in the way of my job right now. Okay, so how about the joy of a satisfied customer or pride in your work? The family business? The family name? Your dad? You know him. Just met him out. Why are you even here? Because I don't want to go look for another job. Or another boss. I'll admit he's been good to us. Better than anything else out there. Agreed. And hey. Maybe we'll even get that Christmas bonus that some of us haven't earned. You're great. Gosh, we really should get back to it. We have a lot to finish before break, and he deserves that. You do have me right behind you. Hey, he's coming. Look busy. Oh, um. Look, two employees, they're both waiting for the same boss. They both believe that boss is coming back, but it's two very different modes of waiting. One is anxious and unsettled. Uh, the other one is, shall we say, indifferent and not anxious at all. Both of those don't work because they both succumb to the same impulse at the last minute. The boss shows up, and what happens? Look busy! Look busy! Friends, theists or not, atheists in the room, do you really think for a minute that when Jesus returns, that the impulse he's looking for in us is, look busy? Mm -mm. Let's talk about it. Lewis there in the essay says, quite plainly, if we are going to consider what it means to live as that, what is important is not that we should always fear or excitedly hope about the end, but that we should always remember, always to take it into account. Well, there's the rub, right? What does it mean to take it into account? Everything you need is in the parable. It's all there. You don't have to go outside of it. What do we find in that parable that helps you and I know what are the marks of waiting for him honestly and properly? Humility, holiness, and a right view of him. I mean, you've heard all this already, even in the words that we've sung, the words that we've spoken. None of this is new. Let's take it in accordance with the parable. Let's talk about humility. Eight times in the passage, you hear the word servant or service opened up, brought out, Brought to the surface. It is, even as, Paul, even as Andrew preached last week, the word there for servant is the word doulos, which means a slave. One who is obedient to his master, who is serving his master, who puts his master's interests above his own 
and he is about his business while his master is, so to speak, gone. That's a kind of humility. And he sets everything else aside when his master returns to serve him. That is, by definition, selflessness. Which is just another word for humility. Now, let's be clear about what that does not mean. That does not mean self-loathing. That does not mean self-hating. But it is, to borrow a line, self-forgetfulness. And it's not new. This is not an idea that is some sort of confined to Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. In Luke chapter 17, just a few chapters later, Jesus says, even when the servant has done everything that was called of him, all that servant may claim is that we have just done our duty. What Jesus teaches his disciples in another place, in Matthew chapter 20, he says, if any of you would be great, you must first be their slave. Doing our duty, pursuing our greatness by way of service, these are things that are as embedded in the teaching of Jesus as anything else that we might find. It's not new, and the motive for it isn't really complex either. If Jesus is the master and we are the servant, then you know what? His priorities are ours. Now, if you are part of our community or if you've grown up in the church at any point in your life, none of that should sound like, that's kind of weird. Why is he talking about that? But I will say that until the last five minutes of human history, it was pretty, pretty significant and pretty centered. But in the last five minutes of history, new things have emerged as a priority, and they all begin with the word self. Um, self-discovery, uh, self-actualization, uh, self-fulfillment, self-care. And you know what? Those are fine. Like, how many storylines in how many films have you seen in the last five years that has one, one of those selves as part of the plot line? I've got to go find myself. That's the new plot line. And you know what? That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are great stories. I love them too. The, the countercultural part of it is this. It's not that we have a problem with the self. The countercultural part of Jesus is that your every thought should not be about yourself because it's not about you. And this is the ironic thing about this new uh, manifestation in human history when it puts the self at the center of all things. Who told you that the self had dignity? Who told you that the self deserved care and development and respect? Who told you that? On what basis? Because you have bigger brains than a bunny? That you have been able to develop civilization and culture like no other species on the planet has? Because it was humanity that came up with the idea and execution of tinsel? Is that why yourself is so important? No, I'll tell you why the self in our minds is important. And the basis for that belief, it's because you were made in the image of God. The soul felt its worth when it learned its source. And we as a culture, if not ourselves, has forgotten that. And when you discard the source, then the self becomes everything. And you find a self that is never satisfied. Tom Holland is a historian, not the actor. 
He's a historian. He's also a Brit, though. And he wrote a book called Dominion a few years ago. And he's not a Christian. He goes to church. He's not a Christian. But he's honest enough to say, where did the idea of humanism, of, of human importance, come from? And what does he say? He says this. To live in a Western country is to live in a society that for centuries, and in many cases millennia, has been utterly transformed by Christian concepts and assumptions. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from view. It's hidden in plain sight. We don't even see it. The wellspring of humanist values lies not in reason, not in evidence-best thinking, but in history, the history of Christianity. He's not an apologist for the faith. He's not a pastor, but he's honest enough to say, as I look at history, if you want to know why the self is important, then you have to go to the scripture. But when you discard the ground for your dignity, then the self has become everything, and humility is out the window. But the mark of humility, let me just put the mark of humility in simplest terms. It's from Philippians 2, Paul said it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is the hardest thing you will ever do for the entirety of your life. But that is not complicated either. The mark of waiting for his return is humility. Not just humility, holiness. They go hand in hand. The Venn diagram overlaps quite a bit. But let's talk about the distinction between it. What do we mean when we're talking about holiness? It is not to live on edge. It is not the attempt to look busy. Holiness as a mark of waiting is simply living in his absence as though he were present as if the boss were right there and the workers were right here. That's holiness. And so in verse 45, you get your comical opposite that Jesus portrays, the one that says, nah, he might come soon, probably not. And so what does he do? He ends up beating his Elo servants and getting, you know, getting wasted, right? So that's this, the epitome of disobedience, mistreatment of others, self-indulgence. If you're waiting to see what is the opposite of waiting on Jesus' return, that would be it. Disobedience. Failing to see what it means to follow him. Self-indulgence. The master in that moment, in the mind of the one who thinks he's not coming is, you know what? I, I'm not even sure he's coming back. And therefore, you know, when the fox is away, I forget, I don't remember that line. Look, what are the implications of that? Do you need to wake up every morning and go, today might be the day? Or, or do you need to go to bed every night and go, I should probably put on clean underwear. I would not want to meet that moment without clean underwear. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's, you, you can. Like, if you do that, that's fine. If that's your rhythm, awesome. What does it look like it looks like this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's about obedience, because obedience expresses expectancy. And coupled with obedience 
is this idea also in the passage of stewardship. There in, in verse 42, he talks about the wise and faithful manager that the master sets over his possessions. He is responsible for that. And then what proceeds from verse 42 and following is all the severe stuff, like the, the dudes that did totally forgot that and flouted that, and they get a severe beating. And the ones that should have known better, they get a beating. And then the ones that, that kind of just look, I don't know. But he comes in a way, they get a light beating. And we're all like, Jesus, what are you saying? Jesus' punchline to that whole confusing, perplexing, stern, severe passage is what he says in verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Last week, you heard Andrew preach from Matthew 25 about being good stewards of the material resources that you possess. Same principle, broader. The whole of life, including your responsibility. Everything that you have is a gift. Everything that you've been given is on loan. And everything that you're responsible for is both an opportunity and a preparation for being given more responsibility in time. And the sooner that you and I all see that what we have and what we've been given and what we've been entrusted with is in fact ours to cultivate, that changes the way we think about our present in light of that future whose arrival we do not know when. That is holiness. And as soon as I say humility, and as soon as I say holiness, the question is, that feels very heavy. And you know what? It is. But the very possibility of you and I being humble and you and I being holy rests upon something more crucial than anything I have said so far. So here's where we land the plane on the last mark of understanding what it means to wait for him in return. There is a person in my household who is learning Latin, and they are in that point of their Latin grammar where they're remembering um, parts of speech. And this week, the lesson was on learning uh, Latin pronouns. And so we talked about how pronouns are a replacement for the noun, and that pronouns agree with nouns in case, I mean, or in gender and number, but not in case, right? But finally, the noun that is replaced by the pronoun is called something, called the antecedent. Yes, that's the antecedent. And when you get the antecedent and the noun confused, you are in the ditch in being able to understand the rest of the sentence. You have to know the noun, you have to know the pronoun, but if you get the pronouns mixed up from the antecedent, you are in a heap of trouble. Can I be very frank with you? I read verse 37 for the last 10 days so hurriedly, I got the antecedents wrong. <gasps> I'm telling you, I got it wrong, and I needed somebody else to point out to me that the antecedents are what you missed it. So let's read verse 37 again slowly. Ready? Here we go. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Who's he? That's the question you have to answer. Truly I say to you, he, there it is again, will dress himself for service and have them, uh-oh, another pronoun, recline at table and he will come and serve them. And you know what? I read through verse 37 and for 10 days I thought, well, he is of course the servant. 
Master returns because the master's been away at a wedding. You know, man, weddings took weeks back then. You didn't know when he was going to come back. And the they would be just, you know, the master and his friends. And I thought verse 37 was all about the servants kind of snapping to attention. Oh, he's back. Quick, let's serve him. No! Do you know what verse 37 envisions? The master is the one who's been away. And the master shows up from being away for a long time. And rather than him say, let's have a meat feast, he says, I'm going to put on my apron. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. You servants, recline at table. I am buying the crudite, and I don't care how much it costs. I will bring the hummus, and we will eat together, but I will serve you. That's the master. If you think your job at his return is just to look busy or to pass the test or be around and, and be shown, showing yourself faithful at the last minute, if you think it's all about kind of having jumping through the hoops and just hoping that you're being obedient at the time he returns, that's not who you're dealing with. Jesus is the one who shows up for the meal and serves. He's the one at the foot washing that he gets down and gets the table and the laver and the towel and washes their feet. That's Jesus. That's the master. Is that how you see him? Because if that's not how you see him, then you don't see him. He doesn't ask anything of us that he has not also been willing to do so and more to an extent none of us ever could. Who is this Jesus? It's where the rest of Philippians 2 goes. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a right view of him. And when you see him that way, the idea of being humble before him and of being obedient and a good steward of what he's given you, that, that doesn't sound like a big ask. And that's why I want to land us here with not a severe word from George MacDonald, but a tender one that I think captures the fullness of what it means to wait for his return. He said this, Whatever a father can do to make his children blessed, that will God do for his children. Let us then live in continual expectation, looking for the good things that God will give to men, being their father and their everlasting savior. If the things I have here come from him, and are so plainly but a beginning, shall I not take them as an earnest of the better to follow? Life may be very hard for you right now, or may have been very hard for you for a very long time, and I would not seek to diminish or pretend otherwise, but I do believe he has offered us blessing that is a taste, a foretaste, that we might then have reason to look forward of the better to follow. 
This is what it means to wait until the world's last night. It is not complicated, but it is clear. Let's pray. Father, we are constantly in need of that reminder. Short-sightedness comes to us as easily as breathing. It's so involuntary. We do not believe that you mean for us to wait in a constant heightened state of anxiety. We do not think you want us to wait in a constant heightened state of anxiousness, hope, hopelessness. We ask that you would help us to be faithful at our post, to love our neighbors as ourselves as a consequence of seeing you high and lifted up, and that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, so that we might know what it means, that though you tarry, you shall return. Let it begin with me in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.